together in sync. Increase our lethality and survivability. It has to go back to the salt hand. Building humans and machine teams that together have a bigger... And it's all about advantage. The way the technology is moving. It's about gathering intelligence through sensor systems. It's going to be fast. Exploring and harnessing emerging technology for the land force is a story of successful failure and immense triumph. Over this series, I'll be speaking to the movers and shakers who are leading into the future with innovative approaches and groundbreaking technologies. We'll explore diverse topics like how artificial intelligence can support and protect the lives of our soldiers, or how vehicles and platform electrification can provide an edge. We're lucky to be speaking with three exceptional leaders representing Army, industry and academia. I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Rachel Ayub, who is leading Army's exploration of autonomous systems. We're also joined by Swinburne University of Technology's inaugural Associate Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Chief of Defence Innovation, Distinguished Professor Saeed Nahavandi. Saeed was the founding director of the Institute for Intelligent Systems Research and Innovation, Deakin University, and has worked closely with the Army to develop the leader-follower autonomous vehicle convoy. Our final guest, Steen Biscard, is the founding director of GarTech, a sovereign company specialising in autonomous ground vehicles. Army has been exploring the use of land autonomy with Steen and his team over the past two years. Join us as we see just how far autonomous systems have come and what Army, industry and academia are looking to in the not-too-distant future in how autonomous systems can not only improve day-to-day life, but also protect it. Rachel, Saeed and Steen, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having us today, Cam. Yeah, and Saeed, welcome. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Steen, it's great to have you along as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So many will know what robotics and autonomous systems are. For those who don't, Steam, we'll start with you. Can you help us visualise it? What are some of the products? What are some of the hardware that is in action? Look, there, there is a really large scale of what's in action at the moment. You know, um, I think what was probably here four years ago was quite limited to a couple, a couple simple robots. Um, what we're seeing now is that literally anything that can fly, swim, um, go into space, uh, drive or loiter is able to be turned into some kind of uh, weapon system, surveillance system. Um, you know, a ring camera can be used f- for, for that kind of persistence. So there's, there is every type of robot out there at the moment um, and Defence is doing a really good job of getting them in and actually t- playing with them and seeing what do we like about it, what don't we like about it mm. as well because there's a, the other whole side of it that, you know, you can't just say technology solves every problem, which is another huge debate. So, Ed, how do you like to explain it to people when you're having those conversations for the first time and people don't really understand exactly what it is? I think when we talk about robot, people visualise it is a humanoid, it walks, moves and so on. And obviously a lot of that is driven by movie and Hollywood and so on, which is a good thing because then that... Uh, so seeds in the heads of scientists, engineers, that can we do it? And uh, they, when you see it in a movie, you believe that it is a reality, but it isn't. Uh, but then it takes several years until engineers and scientists, they bring it into reality. So that's one aspect of robots. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, 
robots and robotics has been around for many, many years, and they have a, a different shape. They, they manifest themselves in a different way. It, it can be in a production line. It can be in a hospital, uh, which they use robots for minimally invasive surgical system, uh, and also defense in terms of mobile platform, land, air, sea, and so on. Yeah. So, Rachel, you're building and helping building these sorts of robots and systems. How do you like to explain it and, and what you're actually working with? Yes, so Rico's now got over 80 robots in our arsenal. Uh, they represent uh, wheeled robots, legged robots, tracked robots, uh, flying robots, uh, and they're in a range of sizes, so from quite small uh, and to, quite, to really quite large. And they're optimised for a task. And so the more we explore the tasks that we want to use these robots, the more they change, the more they... Uh, the shape and the uh, the range, the duration, all those things change. And so the robots of today won't look like the robots of tomorrow. Steen's already said how much it's changed just in the three years of the ARX. And I expect next year we'll see completely different things again. And so what are some of the tasks that you're talking about? We're looking at ISR tasks. We're looking at uh, how do we how do we see further? How do we uh, extend our weapon ranges further? How do we reduce our soldiers? Uh, risk to harm, how do we um, increase our lethality and survivability, really. Yeah. And so I'm going to pull you up there. Can you tell us what ISR is? ISR stands for Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance. So it's about gathering intelligence through sensor systems at range. Yeah. And so recognising that there's a wide audience listening, can you provide a broad overview of what Autonomous Systems Army is a, developing and testing, and B, currently has in service. And so we've just touched on that a little bit. Let's expand it from there. Yeah, so we're really looking at autonomy as a spectrum. And so that's from uh, remote control all the way through to a system which you could give it a mission set, and it can plan its own path and navigate its way to its objective and then complete a mission. Now, that represents quite a significant difference in... Uh, a range of capabilities that are on board that platform, whether it be artificial intelligence, battery life or payloads. And so along that spectrum, what we're really trying to understand is what is the minimum viable level of autonomy for us to achieve a mission so that we can team robots with our humans and achieve a much more significant impact on the battlefield. And so do you have some of those systems currently in operation? So RICO doesn't have systems in operation. We're exploring in a trial sense uh, a range of, of systems, wheeled, legged, tracked. Um, we've got, um, in, we're investing along that spectrum. We have leader follower trucks. You will have seen them on the public roads earlier this year. We've got, uh, we're working with Steen on disposable robot systems. So you, when you see the robots and autonomous vehicles in action, the trucks driving around Mount Panorama Race Circuit at Bathurst there. What goes through your mind? You know that I actually was the leader for that project and, and the first big rigs, big vehicles, and then it was a big challenge how one can introduce autonomy into such a large vehicle because the way they behave and the way uh, small vehicles, they work, they are very different. Now, so it has its own set of, you know, uh, challenges. Uh, which throughout that project, uh, with the support of Army, we worked through and we overcome a lot of those challenges. But where future lies that, uh, the way I see it, when autonomous vehicle, when a machine, when a robot can anticipate and predict uh, and uh, a human 
desire, human belief, and human uh, wants, you know, then machine and robot, they can work together in sync. Uh, and uh, this is a very important part that how we can get robot and machine to team together to work. Instead of giving instructions, I think one day in future, maybe we can have a series of sensors being attached onto top of human skull. And through thinking, the machine knows, you know, what to do and how to help, you know, our soldiers, our people. So that's going to change the future battle space immensely. I think so. I think that the, the way the technology is moving, the way all of sensory system uh, and uh, epidermal patches, uh, antennas, and uh, the way AI advancing uh, and the way quantum computing is coming into, into play, uh, I think uh, we have very exciting futures. And I think future generation, in my opinion, they will be far smarter than us as academic and all of us as academics. We are scared, you know, because the rate of learning is far faster. So the way the future generation, they can contribute towards uh, generation of knowledge is going to be far faster. And hopefully it can provide better quality of life for us. I think that final statement is the key piece here, a better quality of life. Um, and there's a lot of doomsday, as you say, that there will be a worse quality of life if robots remove jobs, if you know society can't generate enough revenue or value or utility and the economic principles start to become undone. Um, war is an interesting sort of occurrence because there's always been this technological edge that people have sought to try and gain an advantage, and it's all about advantage, um, and then there's a counteraction, and then you would do another action. It's, and throughout human history, we can track through history what, what has occurred. Um, now we're starting to see that loop occur every six months, every three months, every month. Something is happening that is rapidly faster. And that is where, you know, traditional platforms, possibly like tanks, everyone always says the tank is dead. Well, it, it finds a way to get another sensor system in it to make sure it can survive. How long will that be for? Who knows? Um, you know, um, aircraft carriers were the solution in order to project force throughout the ocean. But all of a sudden, submarine systems have become so advanced. Now long-range fires. Now the Ukraine uh, Navy and Special Forces are using bomb boats that are able to really successfully strike in the right environments. So what's it look like? It, it's going ins- to speed up. People are going to be able to make things faster. We need to learn lessons like the Taliban did. They actually made stuff at scale, at pace. Minimal viable product was probably their mantra as well. Um, I don't think they did it as well as Rico will, but they definitely had a method of achieving that. Same sort of you know, metrics. Um, and it's going to be fast. And that is the thing that, you know, what Rico is doing is so good is they've identified that. Army is saying, have a go, bring it forward. And that is what's going to let us have an advantage and do it properly. Rachel, as you hear Steen talk, what are some of the things that go through your mind? Yeah, so the minimum viable approach doesn't necessarily mean that we just stop. So we develop a product, uh, take the leader follower uh, convoy, for instance, you know, Now that we've explored that technology on the public road, we know where we could deploy that tomorrow if we had to. And we know where we could, we still rely on a human driver to navigate certain environments. And so that means that we could field that and generate advantage straight away. And then it can still continue to evolve with 
with an industry partner to, to make it a better product. So that continuous improvement approach to the minimum, accompanied with the minimum viable field testing, uh, is, is I think, uh, you know, a way that we can leverage emerging technology. The beauty of all of this for the society is for its dual use. So military sponsors the project, develop, but the rest of the society, we can benefit from it in terms of agriculture, mining, uh, transportation, logistics, and so on. So that's really the whole society benefits from this. Yeah, and another great example that Rico's uh, working with the University of Technology in Sydney on a brain robot interface. And so that's using eye movement patterns to drive robots. And so for um, disabled people, you know, there's, there's real advantage in that, and that's on the back of defence spending. You mentioned the pace of change there. Steen, after 11 years of service, including your deployments, how would this tech we're discussing now have helped you back then in real battlefield situations? Massively. Um, <clears throat> when I was a troop leader, tank troop leader, you know, you would be in the field, you'd be conducting the traditional reconnaissance or strike activities. If we'd had a little drone that we could have punched up over a hill and seen what was in the next five, six kilometres at the troop level, then we wouldn't have had to have bothered other people in our organisation to tell us what's forward, what's there. Um, if we'd had some of the radio systems that are emerging now, we would be able to transfer very small amounts of data that would have given enough information to say what people have found. Um, you know, we, I had an FBCB2 system. It was a computer system that you have a Blue Force tracker, and that would enable you to share information digitally. They came with the American tanks. Um, we didn't buy them as part of the Australian larger formation, and we learned to use them. So we got to test something a little bit different. It was really, really good, but then no one else in the whole army had it. So now we have a different BMS uh, battle management system, and it enables army to transfer information digitally between itself. We didn't have that, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. We had some testing systems, and we had to just talk on the radio. But that sped up our ability to communicate massively. So, you know, just in that little example, there's been a huge increase in capability of the organisation. The technology that's on display here now, if soldiers can get that in their hands and just start to play with it, it'll be incredible. How, we don't even know how many things it will unlock. And that's part of the journey as well, is where is the utility? And the utility is different for different organisations. But if it can have multiple layers of utility, then the cost point's even better. So how exciting is it for you, someone like yourself to be able to sit down and listen to a veteran's experiences and say, we had this and it would have been better if it was like that. And you can then go away and start developing in that. And then for Rachel, you get to build it and deploy it as well. That must be hugely exciting for you. Absolutely. The way we see it, that detect and protect, you know, all these technology, you know, in terms of detection and then how it can protect our forces. I think that's very important. And so take us through the timeline of what the conversation might look like when you're sitting down with someone like Steen and the idea goes onto a piece of paper and then it needs to be developed and then you need to work with Rico. How does that play out? Okay, so uh, a lot of time uh, I have actually used the technique, uh, system thinking uh, approach, the spiral model. And um, uh, we take the problem as given and then uh, we rewrite the problem as understood because sometimes problem as given can be different uh, by the time problem as understood and then repeating it back to our sponsor is this what you want you know is this what have we understood your requirements correctly and then the next part of the journey is that to identify uh, the right skill set 
the right team, especially when it comes to the kind of projects we are talking about. For many years, I've been playing with robots, small robots. I programmed first robot in 1982 uh, inside the lab and so on, and then uh, for uh, manufacturing and so on. Then designed and built small vehicles, racing vehicles and so on. But here we are talking about big trucks, you know, big rigs. And as it happens, I, I used to drive trucks and so on. I have a passion for vehicles and so on. But bringing that to a team, a bunch of academic and scientists and researchers, at best, maybe they can only drive a vehicle, you know, a car. And then to tell them that we want to actually solve a big problem, uh, put autonomy on a big truck. Some of those guys, they had never been inside the cab of a big mm. rig. <clears throat> they have never been inside the cab. Not to mention then to train them how to drive, to understand how these big rigs, they work, and then to actually come up with the technologies to actually control, and then test and evaluation, which is the most important part of the whole part of this equation, really. Everything in my world is test and evaluation, test and evaluation. Yeah, I think he's just struck something that's really valuable for listeners here, which is the hybrid team, which is someone who understands the end problem, so an end user, someone who can go in the environment and remember the problem set that they're solving, and then the technical expertise of the engineering team, the design team, the commercial team, the people who are actually able to put that into either a product or a minimal viable product or um, you know software, mechatronic boards, or anything that's actually gonna be made. So one person can't do all of it. Um, and I really, really early on sort of learned that at GuardTech, that we have to have a diverse team of engineers and veterans and fabricators and in-house skills that enable us to actually build things. But it, then it has to go back to the soldier's hands. So you have to have someone who, um, you know, I'm going to say like myself, who tries to keep that, you know, uh, tactical understanding alive and you really pay attention to how would this work, what was it like when we were in the field doing this. Give it to a few of them, get people to give you their opinion. People who have never seen it as well, when they go hands-on for the first time, you, have to, you, can, you can identify the journey that they have for how do they experience it. And you have to make sure that, that that also flows. So there's a billion things you have to get right and you have to combine everyone together. Um, and that's where, again, Rico is doing such a good job because they're bringing in the specialists, they're bringing in the defence layer, they're bringing in the environment you can train at and they're letting everyone come and actually play and, and have a go. And yeah. only by doing that will we iterate quickly. Leading on from that, we know that failing is, of course, part of learning. Rachel, what's the current attitude towards failing in army? Yeah, so failing is a bit of an interesting word because in, a, in the sense where we don't really know what we want this system to do, what does it mean to fail? So for us, I think it, failing means not giving it a go. Uh, and so we've got quite a risk appetite in terms of giving things a go. Uh, that's not to say that we're unsafe. That's just to say that we're, we're willing to take some risk in, uh, in exploring this emerging technology. And so in a systems engineering sense, just to reflect back on what Steen and Syed were talking about, in, it's really important to know what your user requirements are up front because if you develop the product and then you want to make changes, it's an inordinate cost to go back and, and change that. And so that's where Rico is really trying to go on a journey of discovery 
with industry so that we can solve what are our user requirements at the same time as the product is being developed. So very much more of that spiral approach. And is that being embraced, in your opinion, by the greater army? There's a real appetite, particularly in our units, for soldiers to get access to emerging technology. And so there is a desire to do that, uh, but at the same time we're a big organisation and, and there's process and, and that's that's the journey that we're on right now. What Where's the happy medium? Yeah. Say so you've mentioned that you've been playing around with robots since 1982. I'm sure you would have had some failures, successful failures along the way. Every day of my life, you could say. <laughs> so one thing is that if you are successful, they, uh, uh, you may take it for granted and you haven't discovered much. Whereas if you fail, then you have greater inquisitive mind to identify why things fail. And through that, you actually enhance your learning abilities and, and greater challenges in order to discover why it didn't work. Uh, with uh, leader follower project, uh, often during test and evaluation, in the simulation world, everything worked. And we were so happy celebrating. And then once we start testing it, things would fail. So then we learned that uh, what simulation world tells you is only 20% of the journey. The other 80% is in the field. And uh, surely things will fail and will not work. And then we had to spend time to determine that why. And the nature of the failure was due to all of the uncertainty exists in the real field, you know? And then how one can quantify those uncertainties in order to work hard on your system is the greatest challenge. Mm. Successful failure for you, what does that feel yeah, like? So hardware fails, machinery will break, it will fail. Mm. People make mistakes. People, uh, so I have a thing at GuardTech, we can make mistakes once. If we make the same mistake twice, then I really care. But if we make a mistake the first time, we can put in control methods, we can change the way we do business, we can learn from it, it's a learning opportunity. Yeah. Mistake the second time just means you're lazy and you haven't identified properly what you've done wrong. But then that hardware and material is what, is what, um, is what will fail and that is generally due to an environmental condition or it is due to an oversight not understanding the inputs that go into the system. Sure. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point because everyone says, you know, failure, this, that, but really failure is only occurring in the environmental aspect of hardware and then people make mistakes and it's all about taking the lessons from both and getting better every time. So you've mentioned your company, GuardTech, a couple of times now. Cheeky uh, plug there. Yeah. yeah, indeed, and we're not going to make this a sales pitch, but I am interested <laughs> to learn a little bit more about it because you're part of the whole chain of uh, of making this happen. So 11 years of service, why, why did you then go and decide to form a company and build technology? Yeah, I, um, I did get told I was crazy a few times when I was discharging, but um, I saw a problem when I was a troop leader and then I saw the problem was uh, a bit larger globally with some of the Americans that I worked with when I was in Afghanistan and I sort of thought I need to have a go and, and, and give this a give it a shot. Um, and it was initially around training systems and being able to bring the battlefield to life and that led us into a very large field of robotics. Um, so we expanded the team, we, we entered the robotics realm and we learned very quickly about it. Um, and then because of uh, we were building consumable robots, robots that could be blown up by aircraft or tanks or uh, other large caliber weapons, 
we learned how to make robotic systems that you could use in other consumable methods. And that's where we've gone into our Jaeger program, um, which is our combat robotic systems. Robots that can go and fight the enemy um, and they're likely going to be consumed and therefore they can be thrown away or they'll be recycled. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different take on the robotic systems. Mm -hmm. um, and we also make deception vehicles, full-size uh, replica-friendly vehicles. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. And I'm interested in learning more about it because, as I said, this is the start of where this whole journey you know, goes and continues. And so have you been able to attract other people in the industry to come and support you and then build the company? Um, we have quite a large team now, actually. Um, so we've got about 35 people in Australia. Um, we've got a standing team of about 10 in the UK, which has opened up in the US. So we're starting to expand out of Australia and work with um, other, for other forces as well. Um, we do look to partner with companies in Australia who we can use as part of our supply chain of people who we can develop hardware with. And we've got a couple of really great companies that we do work with. Um, we try and in-house as much as we can so that we can be very fast at it. Uh, and that, that just means large capital expenditure and it means, you know, trying to get the right people to work on the right project for the right amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so far it's worked. It's worked really quite well. Yeah, wonderful. And so, Rachel, for you on the other side of it, that must um, you know be so encouraging to hear these sorts of stories. And there's many that are all working towards the greater goal that you're driving. Yeah, there is definitely. There's a lot of small companies on the floor of the ARX and they're different ones every year. Uh, it's nice to go and visit them and see the company as it grows and expands and takes on new team members and the diversity of the team is really incredible. So uh, like Steen said, there's some really intelligent people. You've got your your veterans as well and everyone's got something that they can contribute. And so, yeah, it is it is really good to see. Yeah, Saeed, and then you're listening to this conversation as well. Where does academia fit into all of that? Absolutely, yeah. I think the future brain power obviously comes from high schools and then university and our TAFE colleges uh, around Australia. And the one important part is that how uh, industry and academia can work together, and in particular, uh, academic, to Im embrace uh, industry and then introduce problem-based, you know, uh, kind of learning for our students. So early on, our students they get uh, they are exposed and get exposure to industry-based problem, and then hopefully some sort of uh, industry placement. So they get the feel for how industry works and what they can do. Uh, many years ago, three jobs back, I used to take our student three days each year on a bus tour and used to take them uh, heavy industry, medium, and then clean. And then used to uh, three days full, full time. And then uh, used to uh, give students this taste of what all these industries are and where do you see yourself working in future? And a lot of times that we were surprised, and I surprised many, that somebody would think that an individual will be working in the clean room was exactly opposite, was wanted to work somewhere, you know, big industry, big machinery, and so on. So we, we surprised ourselves over and over. But it was a, a, a great journey to actually have a student being exposed to industry and actually be, uh, to, to have this process of industry placement. Mm. No, yeah, it's super important. Um, we hire a lot of grads that sort of come out. We also get them as undergrads and have them come in as casuals. And um, 
you know, it, it's a really good opportunity for them to get exposure to one, their first sort of job, because a lot of these, you know, guys and girls are maybe 18 to 21 and they're quite young. And then they come in and there's a, you know, a large team of either veterans and engineers and some senior guys and they're building all these ex ex crazy robots <laughs> yeah. and systems. And it can be a little bit overwhelming, but, um, you know, we've just learnt that you just bring people in, get to know them. And it's funny because some of my fabrication team, you know, my, um, my, you know, hardcore, dirty industry traditionalists, they're really interested in the 3D printing and the, the mechatronics and the electrical engineering. And then the, then the electrical engineers are really interested in talking about how do you actually, you know, do, um, how do you forge something or how do you build something with your hands? And we try and cross-pollinate with that and let people weld and let people laser cut and then they learn how to do this. And, you know, the more you can do that, the more you bring a team together and everyone realises they're all the same. Yeah. And this, it's called work and you're at work to generate money and we all, you know, that's how the world works. Um, but yeah, we, we can build a really good team that way. And the young minds that are coming out of university now are truly incredible. Yeah. And, and so for some of the older, harder heads that have been around the block a few times, are they willing to sit there and listen to younger ideas? Absolutely. I think sometimes the older guys are intimidated by the younger guys coming in and girls who are coming in. Uh, the, 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 the skill sets that most of the younger people have is their communication isn't as good and their ability to direct and to coordinate isn't as good. The older people generally have learnt that and they've dealt with poor management or problems and they've gone back and forth about it over time and they've grown as an individual. Um, they also generally come from a different position. You know, they're financially secure, they have their life set up um, and they are, it's, it's easier for them to push back. Whereas uh, juniors can often be a little bit naive with sort of the environment. But, you know, when you combine that and when mm. you give people that good leadership and you give them opportunities to flourish, it's incredible what people can do Straight out of university. Yeah, sounds like unstoppable force, Rachel. I know for you at Rico, you also have a range of graduates that come in and experience it, live it, feel it. That must be, again, exciting for someone like you who's been, you know, serving for quite some time. Yeah, very much so. So uh, the Australian Public Service have a graduate program and Rico's always putting their hand up to offer positions to grads and we try and get them around the country, see some of our industry partners, some of the tech that we're trialling. Uh, and it is, they do definitely bring a different perspective. They ask different questions. Uh, yeah, it, it's really refreshing. Yeah. So when we're talking about what capability needs to be developed, how might a typical conversation sound like between say, Rachel, you as a serving member, Saeed, you in defence industry, and Steen, a vet with 11 years of service. What does that sound like? Steen, let's start with you. I think Rachel will say that I probably push more than I should <laughs> yeah. but, and um, annoy them as much as I can on LinkedIn. But, um, yeah, I think you have to sort of, when you have these conversations, you present to the strengths and the experiences you have. Mm -hmm. um, I only raise my hand and try and say that we're trying to solve this problem this way because we we know it's a problem and we have that advantage of um, that experience to therefore have the requirements to think about it from the end user's perspective and to build out the hardware. Um, I think the conversation would be very different when, when, in, when um, academia is probably working, you know, people work in different spaces as well. You know, I'm trying to work really with what can I get my hands on right now and make. Academia is thinking about quantum computers and some really, really down the path, but maybe closer than people know, mm. technology. And that takes 20 years of labour to, to output. So it's a different, it can be a different environment. A lot of time, you know, casual conversation that somebody from uh, Defence Force talks about, oh, we wish we had this, or we wish if we could do this or that. And then academic uh, uh, sitting 
in their labs and so on, they are all the time developing technologies, but really they don't know where it can be applied. During those conversations, you know, new things sparks off. And then we often say, oh, we can do that. And this is how, you know, the autonomy project came about. And I have experience with other projects as well with defense. And the other thing uh, in my own career uh, that I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, being, uh, working with Army, Navy, and Air Force, that I had uh, been lucky enough that to visit various sites, various platforms, and then uh, Defense Force sharing some of their problems. And first, you know, I was excited to just listen, and I, I thought that this is free lunch and so on. But then later on, I learned that, really, they know what they're doing. They know that when they tell me these kind of things, I take these concepts back to the laboratory, talk to our researcher, and over a period of time, six months, eight months, a year, uh, suddenly we have developed technologies that they had talked about a year before. And then, during that, then we, we, uh, I've gone back to Defense Force, Army, Navy, Air Force. I said, by the way, you know that problem you had? What do you think of this solution or that solution? And that has sparked off a creation of a, a new project that then Defense Force has you know, formulated. And then I actually uh, built a team and then worked on it and then uh, attempted to deliver. So I think we're almost at the tipping point now. And until now, Army and Enrico in particular have been very much industry-led. We've been waiting for proposals to come to us and we've seen the value in a project and said, yes, let's pursue that. I think now we're at the position, we know enough about the technology that's available today. We have got an idea of how that technology can mature over time. And we are also growing and uh, we're about to build that capacity within RICO to start having the conversation about setting the next demand signal or the challenge that we would like to see solved uh, in the near future. And so I think that's about now. So it's an incredible offer. Rachel, I know you have spoken internationally about what you're doing at RICO and let's um, lean back in on robotics and autonomous vehicles. When you speak to other people, especially outside of Australia, what are some of the things that they say back to you? Are they surprised that we're so advanced? So more my own observations of uh, our place in the international community. One of our strengths is that we are small. And so we've got one team looking at the big problem, whereas in other countries they have multiple teams looking at specific parts of the problem. And where they might solve a problem, it's they're looking to us to be able to piece that all together into a, a larger narrative. And I think that's really where our strength is. So we look at an operational scenario from from quite a high point of view, whereas everybody else tends to think of their specific problem Okay. And what are some of the conversations you're having with international colleagues, say? Two words, I think. Australia is agile and operate lean. So, and that's the beauty of it, you know. So we're very agile. We can maneuver, uh, adapt, uh, embrace new areas of research. And definitely Australia leads several areas of research. Robotics is one of them, field robotics. And I have many great, uh, you know, colleagues around different universities, CSIRO, DSC, and so on. They are making superb, you know, contributions. And uh, from outside, you know, when I go to conferences, I've just come back from uh, 
uh, Montreal giving some IEEE speeches there. Um, they actually, the way they see Australia, that we do make a contribution and we are solving some big problems. And it sometimes surprised me that they think that we are ahead of them, which is a great, you know, great feeling, you know, that, and that really uh, brings everything, you know, home for us. Yeah, and what about when you have conversations with uh, mates who I would imagine also served and are, are veterans now, and you're telling them that you're making this, but you're having conversations with the team at RICO, that must be for them something very different from what they've experienced. I think it can be, um, but I think people quite often sort of see the light bulb moment and go, oh, it makes sense, we do need that, or that that's a simple way to solve it. Sure. Um, one thing with the international community, you know, the UK has um, a really great warfighter experiment and a real and a, and a number of um, of robotic test units. The US has, as Rachel said, very well actually the, the breakdown of the individual problems. Huge organisation for the Department of Defence, um, and you know they have the Army warfighter experiment as well. And Australia, the UK, and the US, we're all combined in this AUKUS team that enables us to. Um, you know, demonstrate in one country, demonstrate in the other, then demonstrate in another, and everyone shares the lessons that are learned. So mm. there's huge power in that. Um, but you know, again, they're very different industries, very different um, budgets, um, but they've got the same problems. So I think Australia punches way above its weight. Yeah. There's some really brilliant Australian companies who are already out there doing work with the US, who are doing work with the UK, um, and you know, there's great Australian companies who are also providing aid and support through to Ukraine. So, and, and utilising that, make it quick, make it work. If it's good enough to get it to a minimal viable product, we can polish it as we go, sort of met methodology. Um, so it's, it's quite impressive. Same question for all three of you. What do you say when people come to you with concerns? People don't really understand the technology and they're scared of it. I think um, on my end, with some of our platforms, it's about um, building out people's understanding of the safety mechanisms that you place in this in order to ensure that it is safe. And also having people who, when they identify uh, an issue or if they identify something that they want to improve, uh, I immediately say, put it in writing, let's capture it properly, and then we can address it, we can go back through and we can make sure that this is safe. Um, that's primarily in the hardware aspect of robotics because they are powerful. You know, they can have explosives, they have electrical systems, you know, like they're machines. Machines are very dangerous. Um, I think the actual application of utilising robotic systems for war, well, I invite people who have a problem with it to come with me next time we have to do it, and you go and stand on the hill and you shoot the anti-tank weapon at the tank that's coming at you and see how it goes. So, you know, there's some realities of war. People don't want to do it, but we have to if we have to. That's why it's our defence force. You know, it's here to make sure Australia is safe. Um, and the reality is that if we have to do it, we want to do it in the smartest, safest way we can. And that, I think, is going to be utilising robotic systems. So people just need to put themselves in the operator's shoes, the soldier's shoes, the person who has to do the fighting. And I think people's opinions start to change. Yeah. I think some people don't appreciate that not all robotic and autonomous systems are very intelligent. You know, the level of artificial intelligence that are on board machines is very different. Some machines have no artificial intelligence at all. And then the artificial intelligence that is on board is limited in terms of how and what it can learn. So uh, the systems that are developed are really developed or optimised for a particular task. And at the moment, they are quite easy to deceive. So they're very easy to, to, to 
trick them into not being able to perform that mission. And then they have a period of, I call it analysis paralysis, where they just stop and they, it's thinking, thinking, you know, the computer says no, you know. Uh, and so I think really it's all about making sure people understand that it's not about replacing humans with machines because machines generally won't be able to do things better than the human. It's about building humans and machine teams that together have a bigger impact. So uh, what I've been uh, calling it from human in the loop to human on the loop. So instead of having human actually controlling the machines and uh, being exposed to all of the dangers, if we can take human out and have it on the loop, so when the machine have those paralysis and, and uh, uh, start doing wrong thing, then you have human on the loop, which, you know, give that extra level of safety, which is extremely important to put, you know, member of public's, their, their mind at rest, but never ever uh, to uh, put human out of the loop. That's where I sit. So we want always human to be on the loop. So human sit at the apex of uh, control hierarchy and decision making of anything. We don't want a machine to suddenly start and say, okay, today is sunny, I want to go in that direction to do whatever. We want that human to actually uh, set the mission and to have the ultimate say, but be on the loop. It's very much a lived experience, isn't it? What you talk about there is exactly what the leader follower program is, isn't it? Yes, yes. That's how we actually develop the system. So human is always on the loop. So the system actually has uh, intelligence. And uh, so leader vehicle uh, goes from A to B. And every follower autonomously follows, meaning that if there is an obstacle in front of it, it has to make a decision how to actually maneuver around that obstacle. And then at any one time, any of the vehicle, follower vehicle, can become a leader vehicle. But the whole of the mission uh, is controlled uh, by a human, and human can abort it, and human can remotely stop any vehicle, and so on. And so we're coming towards the end of our conversation. I'm going to ask you all the similar question as well. Steen, we'll start with you. What does autonomy in Army look like in five years? And then what does it look like in 20 years, do you okay. think? Uh, autonomy in Army in five years, it's the human machine teaming aspect. We're going to see as many robots I hope in front of soldiers um, as we can. And we're gonna be working out how to coordinate them, how to uh, supply them, how to generate combat effects and tempo with them. Uh, in 20 years uh, before that, I believe we will see the robotic fighting echelon. It will be, uh, the battle space will be robotic systems. I think they will operate on their own. I don't think humans will be able to keep pace with what will be occurring. Um, and I don't personally think we need to. Um, in certain aspects, and uh, I think we will see the winner uh, will occur uh, when another robotic force is, is destroyed and the attrition will occur and then the other team would surrender because you would not be, a, would not be able to fight back. Uh, I think it'll be a little bit like that. Saeed, five, then 20 for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very difficult question. Mm. So five years, I think the level of automation, if we uh, go back to... And the way Society of Automotive Engineers, they have defined it, maybe we are uh, talking at uh, level four. Uh, but 20 years from now, 
the way the technology AI and machine learning is uh, developing and coming into play. I think we will develop machines that is going to surprise us. And hopefully these machines will never be used, but we will keep it. And we say that my machine is better than yours. And then, you know, constantly we are developing so we can create a better world and a safer world for everyone. Uh, so that, that's how I see it, because uh, the way the technology is developing, the level of lethality can exponentially grow. And we don't want to actually develop something to wipe out the whole of humanity. Mm. So we want to do exactly opposite. We only want to really uh, defend our nations and then to stop the uh, criminals, the bad people, to do the things. And in the society, when people do bad things, you put them in prison, you know, and then society, they get on with their lives and, and we create a better society to live in. Rachel, final word for you, five, then 20 years. I'm sure these are the sorts of conversations you're having all the time around the Rico lunch table. <laughs> I, I don't think Skynet will be around in 20 years. <laughs> uh, in five years, I think autonomous systems will largely be in the air. Ground machines will still be largely tele-operated at range by humans. In 20 years, though, first contact, if, if it's not first contact by a robot, then we've failed. Using your word, failed. Yes. Um, so in 20 years, I do see humans in a depth position still having an impact driving the machines, but they, their levels of autonomy will be increased such that you can give missions to machines and that they can manoeuvre, plan, uh, and execute tasks. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure people listening will have enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel, Said, and Steen. Thanks, mate. Thank, Thank you. you.